Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. That's where we are today, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Today we are drawing to a conclusion our series of messages, messages entitled The Beauty of Belief. We've been looking at some basic doctrines of the Christian faith, and today we're talking about revelation and truth from 2 Timothy 4. Here's the key concept. The Bible is true, and truth is true for all. The Bible is true, and truth is true for all. While you find 2 Timothy 4, let me ask you this. Do you get hate mail at your job? I get hate mail at my job. And I usually don't share the hate mail that I get with you, but today I'm going to read just a portion of a critical letter I received some time ago. This is part of what it said. This a lady was writing this, and she says this. I visited your church, and I was appalled by what I heard. This is why I'm not a Baptist. The truth of open-mindedness will always prevail over the likes of your church. I would never attend a church like yours again, which is nothing but a brainwashing machine. I left your church with my skin crawling. John Lennon's song, Imagine No One to Kill or Die, Die For and No Religion To, refers to the likes of your church. And it continues on in that general vein. So, what had I said that made this woman so mad at me? Little old me. <laughs> Likeable, lovable me, right? What, what did I do? What I did was, I preached on the error of relativism, the idea that says that all philosophies, all religions, all moral systems are equally valid and equally true, even if they contradict one another. See, relativism claims that there is no absolute truth that is binding for all. Therefore, contradictory points of view can all be true. And relativism, no doubt like this woman, claims to stem from a commitment to tolerance and open-mindedness, open to all views, except my view, right? <laughs> but it is the dominant force in our culture, and to go against it will hit a nerve, and it should not be surprising. It's not surprising. It shouldn't surprise you because it was perfectly predicted in the Scripture. The Apostle Paul did so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Read it with me. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Today, I'm going to talk to you about where truth comes from what we believe about God's Word, God's inspired Word, and what we believe about truth itself. This is what, what I call one of the thinking cap messages. You have to have your thinking cap on here today. Well, I hope to be able to uh, accomplish this with you. What we believe about the Bible, what we believe about truth. The author Alex McFarland asks this question, can you imagine a world with no measurements? A world with no systems, no standards of any kind, no clocks, no currency, no math. Imagine a world where one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two. In fact, it will equal whatever you want it to equal. 
What would, be, what would it be like living in such a world? It would be chaos. It would be anarchy. And it is exactly that chaos of thought that's being put forth every time you hear somebody say, my truth versus your truth, as if truth changes and varies from person to person. No, a rule or a standard, if you will, is needed. Just like it is expected that we would have rules and standards in a logical society, so we need spiritual rules and spiritual standards that we know are true. That is why God went past what we talked about last Sunday, which was general revelation, past the, the general awareness that there is a God that we get through the creation that He has made and the cosmos that He has set in place. He went past that and given to us what we call special revelation in the Word of God because we need words to communicate ideas. In the fact, the word that we use to describe the completed collection of Scriptures, we borrow from the Latin language. We call it the canon of Scriptures. And that word canon in Latin means a rule, but like a straight-edge ruler that a carpenter might use. This is the straight edge of truth in the canon of Scriptures. Today I want to tell you about why I believe God's Word is true. Now, I'm just going to show you some very practical, down-to-earth reasons why I think that is the case. First of all, it is logical and necessary that God would reveal Himself and His will and His way using words, using language. In nature, we get the hint of God's transcendence. We're, we're pulled to the conclusion that behind the design, there is a designer. That's why in every civilization through all of time, there has been an idea of religion. But there's a limit to what our minds can discern from this general revelation. God communicates beyond that. He communicates clearly through language that we can understand and therefore can, can uh, have concepts that come with those words. He makes Himself known. Why? Because God wants you to know Him. God wants you to realize who He is and what He has done. He doesn't want you to be vague. In fact, part of the way I describe my ministry is stamping out vagueness. We're too vague about what we believe, about what we can know about God. We need to stamp out vagueness because He communicates with specific words that give us specific ideas. He reveals Himself verbally in the Scripture. It's almost as if God, like a mother, is bending over, coming to our language to show us Himself. And beyond that, even further He went, bringing Jesus as the Word made flesh to give us the example and to show us hope through redemption. It's logical that God reveals Himself in words, number one. Number two, the words of the Bible are validated by the accuracy that we can see in the ancient manuscripts that we have. You see, one of the first questions that we have to ask about the Bible when we open it up and we begin to read is, how do I know that what I'm reading is what the authors wrote down? See, we don't have any of the original manuscripts. We don't have that parchment that the Apostle Paul gave to his secretary. We call him an amanuensis and, and, to, and begin to dictate the letters to the various churches. We don't have those parchments, those papers. What we have is copies. We don't have the originals. 
And, and the copies need to be evaluated to make sure that they're accurate. How do we know that this is really what the, the Bible says? How do we know that what we're looking at is reliable? And we have developed a, a way to make those determinations. There's evaluation points that people who, who examine the literature of Scripture bring to the evaluation of the manuscripts. And here's a couple, of, here's three of them. First of all, the number of manuscripts that's available and the agreement of those manuscripts across the breadth of their existence, that's a test for accuracy. Secondly, the condition of the manuscripts. Can they be read? Are they readable? And thirdly, the nearness of the creation of the manuscript copy in time to the original. Those three things we look at and we say, as we evaluate manuscripts, we want to make sure that these, this, the manuscript is passing muster on those three things. And what I want you to know is that in all those areas, the New Testament is the best attested work in the ancient world bar none. Nothing else is even close. We have over 5,000 full or partial manuscripts of the New Testament in the Greek language. Add to that thousands of other manuscripts in other languages. Total, there are 24,000 full or partial manuscripts from the ancient world that still exist today that can be read. And the exact word-for-word -word agreement across the breadth of those manuscripts is about 99%. Compare that to the fact that most other ancient documents that are never questioned by historians, have, we have manuscript evidence in the single digits versus thousands. One person puts it this way, one author. There is nothing in the ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. In other words, we have many of them and they agree. And they come from a wide geographic region. They exhibit the remarkable sameness, even though they're copied for thousand years by hand. There are variations. There are differences we see between the manuscripts. And the good news for you who read English Bibles is the, the, the Bibles that we have take those variations into consideration. That's why oftentimes you'll be reading a passage and there'll be a footnote. And the footnote will say, some manuscripts say such and such. And oh, that's why a good study Bible is a, a big help to you so you can see some of the variations. Sometimes a, a portion of Scripture is in the, in, the, in the margin kind of for a couple of verses because maybe the best manuscripts we have don't have this wording this way. But what a wealth of resource to have that. And what we need to understand is none of those variations affect any Bible doctrine at all. It's just little differences here and there. We see a remarkable, and I would say a, a supernatural preservation of the text. But thirdly, archaeology affirms the Bible. The events and places that have been verified by archaeology uh, discovered, they verify that the very story that we read in the Bible. And for years, a lot of the places that we read about in the, in the Bible were doubted as to whether or not they actually existed. Jericho was one of those places. For years, people thought Jericho was a myth. But today, when we go on our Holy Land tour, we will stand right next to the walls of Jericho down. We will be able to see it exactly where it happens. The same is true of Nineveh, Ur, Megiddo, Solomon's horse stables, the tomb of Joseph. For years, the existence of King David was thought to be a myth. Recently, we have uncovered archaeology uh, scripts that talk about King David by his enemies. 
And so every time we, we dig into archaeology, we find more confirmation of the Scripture. One, one archaeologist says, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. 1968, the archaeologists unearthed a crucifixion victim. His name was Yohanan. They were able to examine his bones in detail. And every detail of the, of the, the, the skeleton of Yohanan corroborated the detail of crucifixion just like we read in the Gospels. They st he still had the spike through the bones of his feet. They saw that his legs were broken, just like it says in Scripture, to, to speed the process. Exactly, exactly as the Bible describes it. Fourth, the Bible is internally consistent. What I'm talking about here is prophecies made, prophecies kept. Promises made, promises kept. Peter Stoner is a mathematician. At one point in his career, he was seeking to disprove the Bible uh, and the claims that Christians made about the Bible, and he looked at 40, uh, 48 specific prophecies about the Messiah to see if they were fulfilled in Jesus. Out of this 48, he reduced it to eight, which he considered to be uh, conclusive prophecies. In other words, these prophecies were outside of the hands of Jesus to manipulate. He couldn't do anything about actually this happening. It happened around him, these eight. And he's talking about the odds. What are the odds of these eight prophecies actually coming to be? So, you know, for instance, odds. If I say something's going to happen, it has one in three chance to happen, you, you might think, well, the odds are pretty good that's going to happen. Or if I say something has one in ten chance it's going to happen, you might think, well, that's, you know, not, not all that reliable. Well, what are, what are the odds that these eight prophecies would be fulfilled in any specific person? He calculated that, that the odds would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one in 10 with 17 zeros after it. Well, what about all 48 being, being uh, occurring in, in one life? It was one to 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros. Now, having said that, let me take you back, take you to my living room yesterday afternoon. Yesterday afternoon in my living room, Sylvia and I had our every Saturday afternoon discussion. And what that is, is she says, what are you preaching on tomorrow? <laughs> and I tell her. And I think sometimes she's kind of choosing whether or not she's going to listen. But in any event... <laughs> I tell her what I'm preaching on, and I mentioned Dr. Stoner's statistics in this conversation yesterday. And she, and she, former math teacher, now science teacher, said, nobody's going to understand those numbers. I'm going to do a unit analysis. Okay. So she got out her pad, started scribbling. She got out her calculator, started calculating, got out her computer, started doing all this kind of stuff. I sat quietly. I didn't want to, you know, get in the way of the mathematical juices that were flowing here, all right? But she said, okay, I've done a unit analysis. Okay, what does that mean? It means that, it let's put the, this into units. If, for instance, ten, just the first number, just the littler number, if 10 to the 17th was seconds, if that unit was seconds, and that would describe your life, you would live 3.2 trillion centuries. All right? So you go, let's, let's think about it if it was dollars. If it was dollars, 10 to the 17th, if, it, if you had 10 to the 17th dollars and you spent a million dollars every second, 24-7, 
it would take you 3,171 years to spend that amount of money. Let's make, let's make it peas. Imagine it's peas. You have 10 to the 17th peas. You could pile 10 to the 17th peas in, in a pile that would cover the area of the continental United States, and your pile would be a mile high. Okay? This is a big number. What Peter Stoner found that not only did Jesus fulfill all eight of those essential prophecies that he picked out of the list, he fulfilled all 48 and changed his life. Promises made, promises kept. Fifthly, the influence of the Bible shows me its truth. How could a book of lies produce people of moral character? This book, like no other, is the foundation for righteous living, the foundation for what we consider to be right and wrong in, ter in terms of character. It's the foundation for our legal system and legal systems all around the world by which we decide what is true and what is false and what is just and what is not. It works in the hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, let, let's not let that aspect of proof get, get, get away from us because it's nice to talk about the manuscripts and the math and all that kind of stuff, the archaeology, but what is really conclusive is the fact that the Holy Spirit uses the words of Scripture to change lives, the words of Scripture to change hearts. Come to the Word and drink deeply the truth in your life, and you will be changed as you study the very book that God has revealed to us. That's the truth about the Bible. So what's the truth about truth? Colossians 2.8, the Apostle Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. I'll take you back to 1999. There was an uber-popular science, uh, science fiction movie in 1999. It was called The Matrix. And in The Matrix, all humanity was enslaved by machines. The machines ruled the world, the machines needed energy, and so what they did was they keep human beings anesthetized and hooked up in these systems where the electrical charges of your biological body provide the energy source for the machines. In order to keep the human race still in those little pods so that they would be there and provide the just be human batteries. They fed what they called the matrix into the mind of the hum human beings. And the, in the matrix, they were living in a perfect world, in an ideal setting, never knowing that it was a falsehood being pumped into them. But in the story, some had broken out, and they see the reality for what it is. And they learned that what they had accepted as true was really false, even though it was agreeable, even though it was pleasant. And what I want to tell you is that all around us today, people are choosing an agreeable falsehood that is untrue, and it's relativism. The agreeable falsehood that says that all philosophies and religions, all moral systems are equally, valued, uh, uh, equally valid. And the only reason you can say that and have a straight face is because behind that you believe that can be true because there's nothing that's ultimately true. There's no absolute truth. And in that sense, then, rel uh, relativism fosters pluralism. 
The various and contradictory ideas about faith, for instance, and truth can all be equally true no matter what they say, since nothing is absolutely true. And this is labeled open-mindedness or tolerance. G.K. Chesterton said it well years ago. He said, the purpose of an open mind is like the purpose of an open mouth, to close it on something solid. But for the relativist, there's nothing solid. That's the point. Alan Bloom wrote the book, The Closing of the American Mind, and in it he, he warns this about relativism. He says, it doesn't tolerate rivals, even though it is the predominant view on college campuses. These were his words. The relativity of truth is not a theoretical insight, but a moral postulate. The point is not to correct the mistake and be right. Rather, it is to not think you are right. That was 1987 he wrote that. And relativism now has become dogma in our world and in our nation. In other words, I'm saying you are considered morally superior if you don't think that what you believe would apply to anybody else. You are immoral to believe that what you believe is true for somebody else. What's happened is that we've changed the way we think about logic. Classic logic teaches that if A is true, then the opposite of A is false. That's called the philosophy of antithesis. And for most of humanity's history, that was the way we, we did logical thinking, antithesis. Both Christian and non-Christian alike, if A is right, the opposite of A is wrong. If A is moral, the opposite of A is immoral, that kind of, that kind of thinking. But no longer today. That's not the way philosophy thinks. Today, truth is found not in understanding that some things are right or wrong, but rather blending ideas. No truth with a capital T. And our culture embraces this idea because it says, here's what happens with, with your beliefs. Each of us exists in a community of understanding. Each of us exists in what sociologists are now calling a tribe. We have a tribe, and inside that tribe, you, you can understand your language, and you have your values and your truth, and it's true for you inside the tribe. For you, it has meaning there, and each of those tribes have his truth with a little T. It's the code that they live by. It's the things that they believe, the words that they understand, but no group is able to say that the tr their truth applies to a different tribe, you see? That's the philosophy around us today. That is the predominant view in our culture right now about religion. And this is why evangelism, when we ask people to accept Jesus as Savior, to be converted and come to Christ and find forgiveness and hope, that is why that is so offensive. How dare you say that your message is true for me? How dare you think that your definition of right and wrong, moral and immoral, is true for anybody outside of your tribe? No, that's just your truth. And that's chaos. That's anarchy. And it is illogical because it says that the only thing that is absolute is that there are no absolutes. And it says that as an absolute. But as illogical and self-contradictory as it is, it is the world you live in. It is the presuppositions of academia in our nation today. 
It is all around us. Truth, big T, doesn't exist. So imagine the situation. We live in a society where, since that's the case, we can't say what's right and what's wrong. We can't say that this is always going to be a sin and this is never going to be a sin. We can't say that this is always a crime or this is never a crime. The, the straight edge has been taken away. So imagine a situation like this. A, a thief comes into a jewelry store. He's coming in during the day to case the place because he plans on coming back to rob the store. And as he's in there in the daytime, he, he meets the owner, and the owner spouts off his relativistic views. They just get into a philosophical discussion, just like you do at the jewelry store all the time. And, and the, the owner says, you know, uh, I believe it's up to the individual to determine their standard of right and wrong. I am open-minded. I am tolerant. I don't judge people. And the thief says, well, you know, my mom and dad brought me up to believe that some things were right and some things were wrong, but, you know, I, I, I kind of like what you're saying there. I, 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 I'm coming around to your point of view. I agree with you. So that night the thief uh, sneaks back, he breaks into the store, and he's robbing the store, but the owner comes in and he discovers him. And the owner says, hey, what are you doing? And the thief says, I'm doing what you told me I could do. I'm doing what is right for me, and what is right for me is to rob you. <laughs> That's not too far-fetched from where we are. Relative, relativism means every rule is simply a preference. Every law is simply a preference for the majority of the people at that period of time. So laws will change as preferences change. Definitions of right and wrong will change as preferences change. Does this sound familiar? So what should we do? People of the book, how should we react? Peter says it this way. And in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Based on what Christ has done in us, we have to put kindness into action and then be able to explain why we're putting kindness into action. Based on what Christ has done for us, we need to demonstrate hope, hope in this life and hope beyond this life, and then be able to explain why we have hope. John Piper refers to this kind of living as brokenhearted boldness. It is called for, being brokenhearted about the delusion of our society, but in boldness, being able to say and live and show the fallenness of humanity, the need for repentance, hope in Jesus, the availability of salvation, show love in action and let mercy take hold and do all of this with gentleness and respect. I believe this is the key to engaging the relativism of our time. We can only argue so much. But we need to let the Holy Spirit inhabit us as He does and take hold of our lives and so influence the way that we live and those around us. See, talking to people about Jesus is the most loving thing you can do. But what Satan is doing right now, he's twisting the minds of people and they're coming around to think that that loving action is actually hate speech. But we can't add to the fire by being argumentative or arrogant in our demeanor. The truth from God is revealed to us in His Word. And His truth is absolute. It is non-contradictory. 
It is unchanging. Truth is discoverable in Jesus. And when you follow him, you follow the one who is truth. And his truth will set you free. So we must persevere in love, in good deeds, in pointing people to Jesus, and one by one allow the Spirit to work in the hearts of those we care about. Because truth will set them free. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to bring truth into a situation where so much confusion reigns. Lord, we thank you that you give us a straight edge. You give us the words that tell the story and the concepts that you ask us to believe. So, Lord, help us to be people of the book. Help us to rightly value what you've given to us and let the truth shine through us, we pray. We want to be your people, people of hope in a world of despair. Help your hope to shine. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.